economics likes to assume that people are rational. Yet, humans are the most irrational being in the world. We have so many biases and assumptions, and we're influenced so easily. Remember the, in the last episode, I mentioned that digital economies is a closed-loop system. In this closed-loop system, we get to engineer incentives towards the targeted desired outcome. And how do we do this? We do this in two ways. The first way is the economics framework where we are building in hard-coded classical economics. And the second way is through behavioral economics. And this is the first underlying principle to manage an ecosystem. It takes into consideration the irrationality of people's behavior. In this episode, we will dive into what behavioral economics is, why are we like that? Why are we prone to influence? And three, how do we apply behavioral economics to token economics? This podcast series is called Economics Design. In this series, we'll be talking about how, a how to design a virtual economy, chat about various case studies, and run interview series with designers of virtual economies. More generally, we will talk about economics design of digital systems. It can be blockchain token-based, frequent flyer digital points-based, or digital video games. All right, so let's get started. What is behavioral economics? Behavioral economics is a specific field of research in economics. Duh, right? <laughs> it studies the effects of social norms and individual psychology on economics behavior. In classical economics, we assume that everyone is logical, everyone is rational, people always do the right thing. But in reality, we have People are not logical, so in behavioral economics, we want to study why people are illogical and why do they behave like that. For example, buying two weeks worth of food during the pandemic is logical because sometimes you can't go out, um, there are food going out of stock, so you buy two weeks worth of food. When it's over, then you go out and buy some more. But buying endless roll of toilet paper, that's not so logical, right? So here are some possible answers. So I will, I'd like to quote something from Deborah Small. She's a psychologist who studies consumer judgment and human decision-making at the University of Pennsylvania's Walton School of Business. So she said that the thing about panic buying is that it gives us a sense of control at a time that we are lacking that. And when we hear people saying that other people are buying something, you just think, oh shit, I need that too. And then it spirals out of control. So three possible reasons from a behavioral economics point of view of why people are just hoarding toilet papers. Number one, people compare and when everyone is doing it, they're more likely to do it. It's a herd mentality. Number two, some people don't know what they want until they see it in context. And everything is relative. So if there's relatively less toilet paper to say noodles, eggs or rice, then the irrational side of us are more interested in buying toilet paper because there's nothing left. And we don't know if you want it or not, but there's nothing left and, and I need to have it just in case. And number three, to make people desire things, we have to make it very difficult to, to attain. And that affects our logical side. So toilet papers are literally out of stock. You know, people are fighting over toilet papers. You've got guards at toilet, in front of toilet papers, handing out toilet papers, toilet rolls, so that people don't take too many. So when attaining it is very difficult, then people are more prone to act irrationally, to act illogically, to want to get it. So that's probably three you know, psychological reasons or three behavioral reasons why people are just buying endless rolls of toilet paper. So in behavioral economics, we usually touch on three themes. 
their heuristics, framing, and market inefficiencies. So let's first talk about heuristics. One of the founders or one of the main um, economists that actually won the Nobel Prize is Daniel Kahneman. So you should check him out. The other one is Richard Thaler. In Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, he introduced two types of thinking systems in our head. System one thinks fast, super fast. It's like Usain Bolt fast. System two thinks really slow. Um, think of the tortoise walking down the street, very slow. So humans are not only illogical, but we are also super lazy. I mean, would you rather watch endless Netflix or solve a very difficult mathematical question during your lock-in time now in, at home? But it's not your fault, really. Our brains are lazy. We just like to take shortcuts. We like to take the path of least resistance. And this is true not just for humans, but also in engineering and in computer science. So we're just programmed this way. We like, it, we like it easy. And that's where System 1 comes in. System 1 learns from experience, and it becomes a mental shortcut, or a rule of thumb. So do you know how you can customize commands on Siri or Alexa? Or you can just customize a lot of different things on your gadgets and smartphones? That's the same thing. Our brain does that. So we can conserve our energy when we need to think more. So we just press the shortcut button, and we go there. We don't care about anything else. That's a good thing, right? Yeah, but no. So we make 95% of our decisions with this shortcut tool. And the good thing is that when things are all the same, this 95% uh, these decisions that we the decisions that we make are easy. You know, we just go and execute it. But the point the problem with this shortcut method is that it doesn't consider new information that's available and new information that's specific to the decision being made. So there's good and bad. Now, part two, framing, second thing. The world is a very, very complicated place. Things are so difficult to understand. How does the internet work? How does emails work? What the hell is Bitcoin? Why is the government doing what it's doing? There's so many things that we can just wrap, we just can't wrap our minds around. So, well, this is why we have anecdotes, uh, we have stories, we have stereotypes. It's easier to understand complicated things when they're simplified to stories. And they also become a mental fil filter for us to rely on understanding. So think of framing as filters. Think of Instagram filters. It is a set of fixed filters that's applied to our face. So you can have, I don't know, like bunny ears or uh, face swaps or whatever. But this, is, this doesn't always work, right? Sometimes we end up with strange glitches. Our brains, being very lazy, just applies apply the filters whenever and when glitch and then glitch happens so this makes our, our this is where we make illogical decisions because we don't consider everything we don't consider everything that is available and thirdly it's market inefficiencies so what about heuristics and framing the first two the first two things ultimately they create market inefficiencies and what are market inefficiencies for example pricing things wrongly, making illogical decisions. So based on all of this, do you understand why we study behavioral economics now? With economics, we like to predict things, so we make the best decisions. You can ask any uh, macroeconomists out there, or um, just in general, a lot of economists like to predict things. I mean, that's kind of what one of the, the main focus of economics. So with classical economics, we like to assume that people are rational. 
turns out, you know, they're really not so rational. So with behavioral economics, we can predict people's irrationality that defy economic theory. Basically, we can predict better now. How? There are a few ways, but one of the major way, one of the major ways is called prospect theory. We evaluate options based on alternatives. So let's say I'll give you a hundred followers on LinkedIn. These people really like your content. They are real people. They are not bots, and they want to learn because of the things that you can provide on LinkedIn. The value of one hundred followers, it's not, it's not an absolute value, because the okay. So one hundred followers is an absolute value, but you, you feel this increase in hundred followers is. It's not an absolute value. It depends on how many followers you currently have. So 100 is an absolute number, but 100 can be different psychologically depending on your reference point. So let's say I have 500 followers and, and um, my friend Amy has 10,000 followers. So we can experience different sensitivity to changes in followers. By adding 100 followers, when you start with 500 followers like me, then there's a huge, it feels different. It feels like, wow, you're adding so many people, so many followers. But for my friend Amy with 10,000 followers, adding 100 followers just doesn't seem so much. And we love having more followers who value and appreciate the work we do. So if you don't remember anything on, on this, on behavior economics, on why we study behavior economics, just remember that decisions are reference dependent. We need references to evaluate outcomes. When people don't, and people don't evaluate options equally, the, the same absolute number of 100 followers give us different feeling when we are comparing to a reference, reference point of how many followers you even you begin with. So it depends on the changes relative to the reference point in absolute value. People are happier when the difference is smaller than when the difference is too huge. So for example, 100 followers added to an account of 500 followers versus 100 followers added to an account of 10,000 followers. So why are we like that? Why are we so prone to influence? We have two levels of thinking, remember? We have the rational mind that tells us, no, you don't need to buy another roll of toilet paper. But we also have the more primitive gut reaction that says, well, you know, I better be safe than sorry. I, if there's no more toilet paper anymore, I don't know what to do when I poop. So the hurt instinct can also kick in when people suspend their judgment and start doing when, what everyone else is doing. So if people are panic buying supplies, others will just follow the herd. Heuristic influence, heuristics, you know, they, they influence our decisions, which are irrational and counterintuitive. So we need help to make better choices. We talk about influence, we are prone to influence in six different ways. Reciprocation, social proof of consensus, authority, liking, scarcity, and commitment and consistency. So none of these make logical sense, but hey, we're not so logical, right? Let's start with reciprocation. When someone does a favor for you, you're more likely to return the favor someday. For example, in crises like this, China sends doctors to Italy to help with the pandemic. I am very, very certain that this action will be reciprocated by Italy to China someday down the future. The second is social proof and consensus. If you're in the blockchain space, are you sick of the word consensus? Consensus just means something that the mass agrees to. It is also a form of social proof. 
if everyone agrees to something, it's more likely to be right. For example, if the WHO, the government of and the gov government of major countries think that the virus requires a lockdown and a huge pause on the economy, other countries are likely to follow suit and agree that that's the right course of action. I'm not saying this is an irrational thing to do so. I'm just saying that we're very we're easily influenced by the actions that most people agree to. With authority, I've noticed I've noticed this um, pretty much early on in my life. I've been to many events and conferences where the speaker is an older Caucasian dude talking about things and people just believe him. Which, you know, sometimes it's true. He says the right things. But sometimes the information is not right and I stand up to correct the information. It always starts with the look of who do you think you are, young Asian female? But when you have, co what, when you have co coherent points and arguments being made, the audience start to view me with more authority. And this is, we think with our fast brain called system one, and then we apply the stereotypes that we had previously, which is fine. I'm, I'm used to it, it's okay. As long as one is open to changes and be aware of the fast thinking that we have. Number four, liking. Believe it or not, people like beautiful looking people and people who are similar to us. Model sells us, model selling us something will influence our, our want to purchase it more than some random ugly person on the street. We also like people who are similar to us because fami familiarity is something that we all love. That's why nostalgia sells and we end up getting influenced easily that way. Number five, scarcity. We simply want something more just because we don't have it. Why is Bitcoin so, so sought after? There will only be 21 million Bitcoins in existence. Is there a real purpose of Bitcoin other than being a digital asset for investment or for speculation? Maybe? Who knows? I'm not here to speculate. But we are so influenced and captivated by the idea of scarcity that when you don't, that you, you need to own something that other people have or other people don't have just because you can, you can own it. And who is the best example of this? Supreme. And everything that Supreme sells. They sell scarcity, and people are influenced to buy hundred dollars. People are influenced to pay a hundred bucks for a brick, like literally a brick with the word "supreme" on it, because it's scarce. There, there's only so many bricks with "supreme" logo printed on it. And lastly, number six, commitment and consistency. We're more influenced by someone consistent in their message. For example. Bernie Sanders and his message during his lifetime career of being a politician. A commitment by, by Sanders as he campaigns the same message all the time. So we're more influenced by people who are committed and consistent to what they say and believe in. Now, part three is the most interesting part. How can we apply behavioral economics to token economics or to economics design? First of all, behavioral economics fits in layer two of the economics design framework. Layer one is what I call systems, system architecture. There's the nerdy things and code in al algorithms or hard coded in the system. The framework is available on economicsdesign.com as a research paper. Now layer one is limited because it's based on classical economics and it assumes rationality of people. We've already learned that that fails. That's not to say it's not important, it is still important, but it's not all encompassing enough. That's why we need layer two. And that's where behavioral economics comes in. 
Layer 2 is the game design that embeds behavioral economics into the experience. Think of user experience as gamification. So let's talk about two things, gamified systems and nudge theory. In gamified systems, we can increase the probability of people's irrational behavior or irrational actions through design. For example, let's say I've got three options. Fruit basket for 15 bucks, candy basket or candy bars for 10 bucks, and a fruit basket plus candy bars for 15 bucks. What would you get? Most people will go for option C because it it, it includes both option A and B, but the price of just option A. So you're paying option A with added things as a bonus. People rarely choose things in absolute terms. We simply don't have an internal value meter for what things are worth. So it's easier when things are or items are being compared to get its internal value. Example in the crypto space, exchange tokens. Exchange tokens gather its value when traders pay it in fiat, crypto, or the native exchange tokens. When they get a better deal with the exchange tokens, for example, paying the, tra the trading fees, they're more likely to want to use the tokens and want to get the tokens instead of just selling it in the secondary market. Example of this would be BNB tokens. Now, moving on to Nudge theory, which is also part of behavioral economics. Nudge is a concept that proposes positive reinforcement and indirect suggestions as ways to influence the behavior and decision-making of groups or individuals. Basically, influencing people's independent actions towards the behavior that you want. It's kind of like Pavlov and his dogs ring the bell and the dogs salivate. It's a little bit more than that. A classic example is Amsterdam Schiphol Airport. What they do is they attach an image of a housefly into the man's urinal and men would actually pee at the housefly so that you kind of want to I don't know, drown the housefly if you pee. And the cleanliness of the urinal actually went up. So people are not, uh, the guys are not peeing um, in random places. I don't know. I guess men are not very good at peeing. But it works. It's nudge theory. It's this independent action to want to pee into the urinal. And the that's the behavior that you want. So a crypto example would be deflationary token. Tokens have limited supply. And when the demand raw, the demand soars, the price of tokens will increase. How can we notch the demand? By reducing the supply available, like staking to be a validator, or staking to earn interest on stakes. The behavior you want is to reduce the available supply so as to increase prices. You can influence the behavior by having a better trade-off, like earning interest on the tokens staked. Just now we talked about the six influence methods, reciprocation, social proof or consensus, authority, liking, scarcity, and commitment and consistency. So let's apply this into designing your token economics, designing your token model, or just designing your ecosystem. So firstly, reciprocation. That means adding value first before extracting value. For example, Crypto.com provides a lot of value add like free Netflix, free Amazon Prime, free Spotify when you sign up with their cards. So that's, you add a lot of value to, to people. The other one, uh, second, is social proof and consensus. The simplest answer would be um, Augur, the online betting platform. But that is the business model, so it doesn't count. So let's talk about Bitcoin. 
why is Bitcoin so valuable? All the other, all, almost all crypto people that I know have the assets in Bitcoin. And the social proof is strong. When the prices of Bitcoin fell on 16th March 2020, instead of liquidating more and just running out and abandon Bitcoin, social media was asking everyone to purchase more since prices are so low. And that consensus brought prices of Bitcoin up again in 24 hours. 3. Authority Authority comes from the background of the founders, the experience, educational background and street cred in the space. The most evident, this is most evident in blockchain projects by academic professors. For example, you have Professor Silvio Micali who founded Algorand. A lot of these blockchain platforms are founded by um, these very knowledgeable academic professors who, are, who bring in a lot of authority into their projects. And as a result, you know, they raise quite some funds. Number four, liking. I still find this quite funny, but in Asia, you see companies hiring pretty females to model their crypto projects. I saw that in, in London, let's say in early 2018. And in 2020, I still see that in Southeast Asia. I don't know, somehow it just works. So according to plenty of my male friends in the space, these girls do a very great job at influencing males to sign up for their projects. So liking girls helps you, influences people in a very long, very easily. Number five, scarcity. We simply want something because we can't have it. So following Bitcoin's path of limited supply, every other project has a capped supply of tokens to induce scarcity. I mean, scarcity is one way to go, but scarcity alone is not enough to influence people to just buy your tokens. Because, for example, there are a lot of limited edition things around, but it might not be worth it might not be worthy because although it's scarce, it just doesn't have value. So scarcity is just one aspect of influence, it's not everything. And lastly, commitment and consistency. When Bitcoin prices fell on 16th March 2020, the community was selling Bitcoin hard on Twitter and Reddit. It's interesting because these people have quite some Bitcoin in their portfolio and they need to pump the prices up to, and they need to continue asking everyone in the community, community to have faith in Bitcoin so that Bitcoin is worth something. Whatever it is, whether they're right or wrong, they're consistent in their message and truly committed in shilling of Bitcoin. So that's good. It influences people and Bitcoin prices actually went up. So in conclusion, Many design of these crypto systems fail, even with the most beautiful mathematical formula, is because they miss out on behavioral economics. Economics design of the crypto ecosystem are in two layers. Layer one is systems architecture, that's all the nerdy things that's coded, that it will be stuff like matching algorithms, resolution mechanisms, and monetary policy that can be coded. Layer two is the game design that embeds behavioral economics into the experience that's user psychology and gamification. So you, you see a lot of examples of, of projects with just only layer one. So very, very sophisticated meta, mathematical models, but they fail. They fail because it doesn't, it doesn't translate to human psychology and irrationality of people's behavior. You also see a lot of projects where they don't have system one at all, uh, layer one at all. So their, their whole architecture is just messy, shitty, and a scam. But they're very good at layer two, which is influencing people to behave in the way that they want. And this is what we call scams. So 
these two if we put these two layers together which which is good system design from an architectural layer you know the the bottom layer and good user psychology and gamification on layer two we can create and design beautiful economic systems so designing an, an ecosystem is like making creme brulee behavioral economics is using the blowtorch to caramelize the sugar to light golden brown it's a very very crucial and important step and i think a lot of um, very academically driven projects are missing out this step quite a bit so before we end once again i like to talk about three discussion takeaways worth pondering and when you have answers or comments or you want to have discussions just put them in the comments below or record a video and tag me in it and i would really love to chat about it number one do you think designers need to abide by some regulations to ensure the morality of how systems are designed it could go out of hand to influence people's decision and this is evident from the countless scams around and people are so easily influenced it's it's insane number two don't you think behavioral economics has a very depressing view of human nature and number three how can we use good design for good purposes for example using nudge theory to encourage good behaviors we can collect data from someone's health status and reward them with tokens when they attain certain health matrix that's positive use of nudge theory so that's that's all for today or for this week on behaviors and behavior economics put down the comments on what else you want to listen in the future until then i'll see you next time bye